0: and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks. Support us on Patreon at Two for Tea. Welcome to the conversation. So, hello, everybody. My guest today is Amy Alcon. Amy is the author of *Unfarcology*, a field guide to living with guts and confidence. And I'll let Amy um, explain to you what that book is about. Um, But just before we begin, I promised my friend Visakan Virasami that I would give him a shout out. And Visakan was not wanted to hear me say the word motherfucker on this show. Visakan motherfucker. How's it hanging up there in Singapore? So now let's begin. (laughs)
1: <laughs> now that you've got me laughing, that's a perfect way to start the show. I love that. And you say that in such a sort of like wonderfully classy way. That's what was so great about how you said that. <laughs>
0: um, so Amy, um, I gather that you describe the book as a science help book. Could you tell me more about what you mean by that?
1: Sure. This book um, is a book that is made up of science from across disciplines, from neuroscience, clinical psychology, evolutionary psychology, and social science. And this, this combines into a stew that provides um, really science-driven advice in a way most self-help books don't. I, I don't like self-help books. I find a lot of them are just one thin idea stretched across 300 pages. Mm-hmm. And it seems, yes. I always feel they cheat the reader. I, you know, it's just, it's, and I just, my goal was to not do that. I'm an applied science writer. So I translate science into normal language, understandable language, and then I turn it into practical advice. And so, you know, being a person who does this, um, I I use this book to, my goal was to make this the best, most practical, most useful self-help book ever.
0: You had a wonderful um, example of, there's a wonderful example of how you turn science into very succinct and relatable metaphors. And it was about neurons that fire together, wire together, that old saying. And I think you described it really beautifully. I'm going to try to summarize if I can. Go ahead. You said, imagine there are two guys. I can't remember what you call them, but let's just say Fred and Bob. And Fred and Bob live next door to each other and every, and they work at the same place too. And every morning Fred gets into his car and he drives to work. And at the same time, Bob gets into his car and he drives to work. And then one day Fred and Bob are at work and they turn to each other and they say, Hey dude, let's
1: carpool. Right. This is it. So this is this is Donald Hebb's theory about how behavior links neurons. And so his theory is that when two nerve cells keep firing at the same time. There are chemical changes. They strengthen the connection between the neurons. And basically, in human terms, this is how behavior gets worn into your neural networks, you know, kind of like a hiking path that's used a lot. So the more you take the path, the more comfortable and walkable it is, and the more you keep taking the path to the point where you automatically take it. And the reason this is important is that behaving, the more you behave a certain way, even if it's not natural to you, the more that behavior becomes automatic. And that's the thing with the Bob neuron and Fred neuron. You know, I call it the neuron version of driving to the office, as you described it. You know, they wake up, they fire, they see the one sees the other one firing at the same time. And then like, dude, let's just carpool. So that's the neurons wiring together. And so then it makes the the action efficient, it makes it more of a default action instead of your having to struggle to behave in a new way. Um, And this is the way your brain saves energy by having these default actions. So Amy,
0: uh, tell me a little bit more about what this book is about. What made you decide to write this book?
1: Well, actually, I had gone through this incredible transformation. I was um, a loser as a child. I had no friends until I was 15. And then I moved to New York and became a suck up. And at some point, I realized that I had no real friends and that people didn't respect me. And I wanted to change this. And pretty much out of desperation, I started to imitate my boss, who was this woman who was very sort of quietly confident whenever I would be in a situation where I would need to stand up for myself and I saw that nobody chased me out of a convenience store with a broom or did anything um horrible, and sometimes I would even get what I was asking for, or people would sometimes grumble, but it wasn't horrible and awful and terrible and catastrophic, and so Even though I did this just by guessing, it turns out after I came to read science for 20 years, that this, what I did is actually scientifically smart and well-founded. And so I began reading in what's called embodied cognition. And this is, I described this with the line, your mind is bigger than the brain. And so embodied Cognition Research finds that who you are is not just a product of your brain. You know, a therapist will have you sit there and think about being a different person for 20 years. But actually, action is character. That's a line from Fitzgerald, meaning what a person does defines who they are. And actually, the research finds that action also becomes character. So basically, by consistently changing how you behave down to how you move and carry yourself and you talk, you can transform how you feel about yourself, how other people see you and who you are. It's really amazing. And it's it's so mm. much more effective mm-hmm. than just talk therapy.
0: So um, can you give me some examples of how you would go about doing that and uh, some situations in which it would be useful?
1: Well, for example, um, a woman at the cafe where I used to write We were at a book festival and she wanted to approach somebody and um, she said, because she would see me at the cafe, talk to strangers, she'd say, oh, but I'm not like you. I'm not fearless. And I said, I'm not fearless either, but I refuse to let my fears be the boss of me. So you just do what needs to be done and you don't let your fears drive you. So I would go over and talk to someone and, and that would be a way to make things happen in my life. And in addition to all this, the other stuff that I did to change, you know, I would be able to talk to them in a way where I would um, not be a quivering lump of jello, but actually a person who could get a point across.
0: So Amy, can you give me some examples, some more examples of how you would use this technique of imitating of faking till you make it? Um, that you were talking about?
1: Well, I would be in a situation and I would basically assume the whole of a person's persona. And this is really important because um, if you try to remember individual bits like this thing, it actually isn't fake it till you make it. It's impersonate your way to the better you, to transforming. And the reason why is because of this thing called cognitive overload. If you do all the things with your body that confident people do and you have to remember those. So I'm going to talk from my diaphragm and I'm going to sit up straight and I'm going to stand a certain way. Um, all of these things, you're remembering all of those. We only have so much working memory, which is like our mental whiteboard for all the stuff we have to remember in a moment, you're gonna just fall apart. And so you're gonna forget whatever you, you were going to pitch to the person you're trying to appear confident for. And by going in impersonating somebody who's confident, you know, and this is sort of training wheels. You don't do this forever, but by going in and doing that, it frees you up because you have a package that you, that you impersonate. When you think of another person, if I'm going to imitate somebody, so I'll be my boss. This is my former boss who's very confident. She was very, very sort of quietly confident like this. Now I sort of sit a different way and I talk a different way and And it's sort of this fun secret you have, so that in itself gives you confidence and and there's this worry people have that, oh my God, I'm defrauding people, but you're not doing this to you know steal a little old lady's wallet. you're doing it to be the best you. It's a training session to be the best you and 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 this is one of the examples so you go in and, and this is something I just did at first. you go in and you sort of test the situation, you act like this person who has self respect. You act like you think they would in a situation and you see that nobody chases you out with a broom. A giant claw hand doesn't come out from the floor and drag you under because you asked to have the correct change. So that's an example of how this works. Right. Okay. So um, so
0: you're you're channeling somebody who you think is confident so you don't have to micromanage.
1: Right. that's It's basically what it is. And, and what it really is, this is do-it-yourself exposure therapy. And exposure therapy involves exposing yourself to your fears over and over so you can see that they're ridiculous. And so this idea that I couldn't speak up, that something terrible would happen if I stood up for myself, that's ridiculous. And I saw that through repeatedly acting the way people with self-respect act. And that's what's so great about this, because basically it's not this thing where confidence is a gift from a wizard. You can just practice until you get confident, repeatedly at confident, until you start to just realize that it's so silly to be so afraid in these minor situations, that you have a right to be in the world, to ask for the correct change. And even if you ask for something you don't really have a right for, you're not going to be met with, you know, people chasing you out, a mob chasing you out and, and screeching at you and, you know, running you into a ditch. Where, where
0: do you uh, when do you notice people being insufficiently confident? Um, are there times when you're watching and you can see that people are lacking confidence and they need
1: this this kind of exercise? Well, we all, I mean, I think we all are conf, unconfident in different situations. This is a point brought out in research by um, two evolutionary psychologists, Lee Kirkpatrick and Bruce J. Ellis. And they say that confidence is domain specific. And what that means is that n- none of us are just globally confident, like we're great at everything and we know it. Confidence is predictive, confidence is a sense that you're going to do well in a situation. And so, if you don't do that well in dating, you're not going to be confident in the mating sphere. And so that's a situation where um, one person might need to work on it more than another. And I do think we notice, we see the signs, somebody, um, they're slumping, looking down at their shoes. They stammer. There are all sorts of things that say we're not very comfortable in a situation and you can see Mm, them. mm. But what's important, Two. This is, this is from research on charisma, that if you have those issues, if you realize that you're, for example, say that you're wearing a suit that's all itchy and you're sort of fidgeting around because of that, because of embodied cognition, how our body drives emotion and emotion actually drives how, we, how our body moves, you need to explain that away. You need to say, oh, my suit's all itchy and that's why I'm a little fidgety. Um, because otherwise somebody can read that as emotional discomfort. Mm. So this is something I've learned. And I put in a bunch of stuff in the book about ways to sort of um, hack business situations. Like if you're going to a meeting, be the one who gets there first. Don't wear uncomfortable clothes. Get there in pl- plenty of time ahead because you what you don't want to do is have to drive like a bat out of hell and then you get there and you're all angry. It's uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> <That's> really bad. <laughs> you know, and so just this book is so much of it is about how important the body is in creating and amplifying our emotions. And so we can use that. And that's what the book is about. It's about how to be fluent in managing your emotions and your body so you can be the best you. And how about in dating situations? How do you uh,
0: what would you what advice would you give for people who need more confidence in that kind of situation? Well, can you be more can you be more, um, I guess, specific? Uh, So how would you, so you were talking about how to be more confident if you're at a job interview. Um, And how would you be more confident on a date? What kind of specific
1: um, tools could you use? It's sort of a little bit open-ended. Well, um, tools on a date, that's sort of uh, is it, what kind of date is sort of what, what I, can you, can you narrow it a little more? Is it a man? Is it a woman? What's happening? Um, uh, so that's interesting. So
0: you feel that there are different tools that you should use for, to be more confident uh, as a man and to be more confident as a woman.
1: Absolutely. I write about this um, with um, the scarcity principle, for example. Um, this is Robert Cialdini's um, um it's his term for how we long for what's rare and special and slightly out of reach, what's hard to get, as opposed to what's hard to get rid of. And this plays out. This is, this is true in business and friendship, but it's also especially important to remember in dating and it plays out in different ways. So um, women who chase men, This is a risky strategy. Now, people will say, oh, but my friend chased her husband like crazy, and now they're married and living happily ever after. But the thing is, men evolved to expect women to be choosy. And this relates to what's called parental investment. And this is a theory by Robert Trivers, who's an anthropologist, about um, which sex has the big investment to make, really across species, in after any, in the wake of any sex act. And so it's women who get pregnant, whose fertility gets monopolized, who are left with the kids to care for. And so women evolve to be the choosier sex and men co-evolve to expect that. So when women chase men, even though we're living in, you know, the year 2018 with iPhones and drones and pretty soon we'll have flying cars We are living with a Stone Age operating system, a Stone Age psychological operating system. We are perfectly fit psychologically for the ancestral environment. So our genes push men to um, behave in ways that would have helped them, been adaptive then, and the same for women. So women are adapted to be the choosier sex. So when they chase men which is don't do anything resembling asking him out that's the advice when they chase men they tell men there might be something wrong with me why am i chasing you why do i have to chase you when all the other women treat me like treat you like crap um, and so and women will think okay i'm going to get around this i'm going to throw a party you know for like 400 people just so I can invite him or, you know, you call and ask to borrow his biology notes, you know, despite how you won the junior science, junior high science fair when you were like five, you know, and he's barely passing the class. So you can't do those things. And you have to, you still have power as a woman. What, what you have power to do is to flirt. So you can flirt way more than you think you can. You just can't do anything that resembles being aggressive. So you can't ask, but you can flirt so much that he thinks that either you really, really like him or you have rabies, you know, but you just can't ask a man out if you want to do, if you want to not do what's a risk in terms of the dynamic of a relationship that you have with him, because a guy will go out with you. He might even have sex with you, but um, will he have a relationship with you and will he have a relationship where he's the one who wants you a little more than you want him, which seems to work best, in my opinion. Um, no, you you probably are putting that at risk.
0: I also wanted to ask you about, you talk about um, shame as being a tool that we can use. Um, that's very intriguing to me. Can you say more about that?
1: Yeah, um, this is very, very interesting. Shame um There's there's been this idea of shame that's been very wrong. Um, And and the idea it's from the 70s, from um, this Yale clinical psychologist, Helen Block Lewis. Um, She said that shame involves a negative evaluation of the self. Um, Whereas guilt, which is the sort of brother of shame, stems from a negative evaluation of an action you've taken. So shame is I'm bad versus the supposedly healthier feeling of guilt. I did something bad. So the thing is, what I do in this book is I look at the evolutionary reason something would have been helpful. Because this tells us whether social science research has any validity. So in an ancestral world, what helpful function would, I'm bad, you know, what, what would that have had? It just, you know, like with the feeling that you suck, help you survive or mate or get better cuts of whatever they're, you know, bison or whatever. No, you know, so there's wonderful research out of um, UCSB by Daniel Snyder and his colleagues that, that finds that shame is actually an emotion program. It's a defensive system. It evolved to keep us from getting devalued by others in our social world. And then in an ancestral environment, the environment in which we evolved and our emotions evolved, um, this was such a harsh environment that being thrown out of your band would likely have been fatal. You know, there weren't any 7-Elevens or Motel 6s or Airbnbs. So shame, according to Snycer, is information-driven. It's brought on by the sense that others could find out about our disreputable behavior or unfair behavior and downgrade us because of it. So I, I see shame as sort of an inner crisis PR specialist. It tells us to keep the bad things about ourselves to ourselves, keep them from getting out and tanking a reputation. Or if the information about us does get out that's unsavory, we, we, it pushes us to take steps to minimize the damage. And this is really important because it helps us see shame as I write about self-esteem in the book, which is, Um, a program for avoiding devaluation by other people. And if you understand it that way, it empowers you because you can decide to do something that maybe would be considered shameful or awful and understand that we don't live in an ancestral world and that um, it's not going to hurt you like it would there. And I'll give you one example, a dating example. So in an ancestral world, we evolved, it, it seems to be in bands of maybe 25 to 50 people. And we spent most of our lives with these people and a few shifting others. But we were not living in these large, vast, transient metropolises we now live in where we're around strangers all the time. So if you're in a bar and you are a guy and you hit on a girl um, and she is just awful and she humiliates you, maybe even throws a drink at you, um, this is horrible. And you're going to react with your evolutionary emotions, your adapted emotions that are perfect for ancestral times, you're going to be humiliated and ashamed. You're just gonna to wanna to crawl under some table and die. Um, you're not gonna to want to just get up and go right back out there. But if you realize, okay, my emotions, they think I'm living in some environment where, like, the same girl, if you just ask the girl out in your little band, you know, and you get, you get shamed and humiliated by her. This is your, your like life story for the rest of your life within the small group of people. But here in this environment, This is this vast transient place. You can just go to the bar next door. Nobody's seen you get humiliated. You can ask somebody out again, you know, then ask another woman. You can reset like that. And by realizing that our emotions are adapted for another environment, this allows you some freedom. So that's why it's important to understand our evolutionary psychology like this.
0: So one of the other things that intrigued me is um your idea that we should not be authentic and that there is power in being inauthentic. Can you say something about that?
1: Yeah, that's that's the thing that I really love in this book. Um the idea um we're supposed to be um, you know, we're we're told that authenticity is a wonderful thing. But what if you're, you know, like a baby seal clubber or a liquor store robber? I mean, you can't you instead do what I suggest and choose who you're going to be? And, and I should say, authenticity basically means having your outer self, so your behavior, match your inner self, which is your thoughts and your feelings and your desires and your values. Um, and the thing about that's wonderful, uh, wonderful about choosing is that what you do to choose who you are is you think about what your values are. And you choose, and for example, let me see if I can find mine here. Okay, these are my top values courage, wisdom, kindness, making the world a better place. I have these listed freedom, liberty, free speech, learning and growth, fairness, integrity, personal responsibility, honesty, but also judicious honesty, meaning you don't just tell people things that are um, gonna hurt them unless it's somehow helpful too perseverance, gratitude, humor and seizing life, which is my car crash principle, which is that, you know, don't wait till you're in a horrible car crash and say, oh, my God, I'm going to now I'm going to start living. Just do it without the twisted metal and years in rehab. So those are my values. And the reason (laughs) I wrote those down and Mm -hmm. people should feel free they are on page 151 of the paperback. Uh, Actually, yeah, uh, that's the page. Um, You can feel free to, quote unquote, steal my list um, or Google lists of values. The reason for having this is that when you wonder what you're going to do in a situation, you can refer to that. You could even have these on a little card or on your phone, and it, it these direct your behavior. These tell you how you're going to behave in a situation to behave as a person you want to be. And and I think of, by the way, of these values that the two primary values that are really important that we all need um, to apply the rest of our values are courage and wisdom. So courage. That's what allows you to do what you feel should be done. And then wisdom allows you to have a sense of what exactly that might be. So, and the example I give in the book is like, mm, you know, sometimes mm. a courageous thing to do is to tell off some jackass in the bank. And other times, you know, wisdom has to tell courage to put a sock in it. Like when the jackass happens to be wearing a bunny mask and holding an AK-47.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. You talk a little bit in the book also about bullying um, as I recall and how you can s- stand up to bullies and stop yourself from being victimized uh, by somebody for example who has power over you um your boss for for to give one example, could you say more about that what what your strategies
1: and suggestions would be? Um, refusing to act like a victim you know is really important so um it's um you you stand up for yourself despite your feelings. You know, your feelings are saying like, go duck under the desk. And instead, you act as a person who has confidence. And that's what I did over and over. And that's what we talked about with the neurons that wired together, fire together. You keep doing that. And you see over and over that this does not come out badly for you. That people, you know, people, you, you can say no, You know, and and mostly people just they'll say, oh, okay," or they'll sometimes engage in a mild argument. Um, People don't do horrible things to you. And in fact, they respect you you know, far more when you show them, as I like to say, that there was no amount of backward that was too far for you to bend over. You know, people don't like or respect people who behave that way. You direct how people behave with the amount of self-respect that you show. And so the thing Mm -hmm. to do is to act as if you have self-respect, even if inside you feel a little bit scared. And that's why it's so helpful to do this thing where you put on somebody else's persona, Um, for a guy, you know, a guy in the movies who's great is George Clooney. He's just like, he's nice, he's smooth, but he's not like gross smooth. You know, he's a guy who's confident he is comfortable in his own skin. So you can pick somebody like that. And what you can do actually to start is to go out and, um, go to a mall. And, and I love this actually, this is, there's, um, there's a suggestion from a guy named, um, it's, um, Stefan Hoffman, um, He suggested that um, you do these exposure therapy exercises. One of them was that he suggested um, that you go to a bookstore, buy a book, and immediately return it. But I I love bookstores, and I don't want people who own them to hate me, so I suggest doing it at the grocery store. So go to a grocery store, buy a box of cereal, and then walk back and immediately return it, like moments later. And when, when you do it, if they ask you why, you know, don't apologize. Just say I need to return this. And if they ask why, say for a personal reason. So this is something you would never do. If you were the old me, you'd be all like, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry. I have to return this. It's just like I didn't really think that it would be like, yeah, you, know, you know, like you go on and hum and a hum and a hum and it's horrible. It's painful for the person listening. It's painful for you, and mm-hmm. you need to just do this like without explanation, you know, you just do that and you test doing that. That's how you do this to refuse to act like a victim. Even if you don't feel powerful, you practice that that's exposure therapy. And what's cool about this in exposure therapy, the old kind of exposure therapy, they used to have you, they, the goal was to make your fears go away. And what I put in the book is this wonderful research from this woman, Michelle Krask at, at UCLA, she is so fantastic. She actually tortures her, her clients, her patients. They have people come up to UCLA and they're afraid of their claustrophobic. She, okay, come up at three o'clock in the afternoon. We're going to lock you in the closet. I don't know if they get people to their appointments, but they have people hold spiders and take an elevator with spiders. And so what this does in these little bits over and over is that you start to see that your fears are stupid. What happens when you hold the spider? That must feel pretty icky. But nothing, you know, nothing, you're not catching on fire. Nothing horrible is happening. We use those words. Albert Ellis, who is um, the co-founder of uh, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, calls it um, awfulizing and catastrophizing, um, that you like, oh, it's awful. It's horrible. Well, what do those words even mean? And these things show you that like, oh, you know, I'm kind of wrong in the way that I looked at this, that it was awful and horrible. It's just uncomfortable and yucky. And and doing this over and over and over changes your brain in positive ways. And you may still have those, those fears are not gonna, they're not gonna vacate totally. But when you when you they come up again, you can remind yourself like I do when I feel loserish, like I'm 80% the new me and 20% of the still loser me hanging around. But the 80% of the of that got all, you know, badass can talk to the other part and say, like, what are you doing? Come on, don't, don't act like an asshole, um, you know, and drag the other part back to where I should be. And, and that's really cool. So because I'm an advice columnist, I do write this science based advice column and I do these private sessions with people and they're very specific. When I talk to people like, okay, what's the problem? What are you doing? What's happening with whom? What's the situation? And that way I can help people, but it takes the specifics. General questions are sort of hard to answer.
0: mm can you can you give us an example of a specific problem that someone has come to you with obviously you can you you can anonymize it and change the any identifying details but could you run me through um a problem that someone has brought to you and the advice that you gave them
1: All right, here it is. A brief history of tame. This is this guy. I'm a 45-year-old single guy seeking a long-term relationship. My problem is that when I'm interacting with a woman I'm attracted to, my ability to read whether she's interested in me goes out the window. I suspect I've missed out on some great women because I couldn't read their signals quickly enough. You know, and what I told the guy is that where he goes wrong is in taking the hesitant approach to asking a woman out. And I say, ideally, oh, waiting for her to give you some unambiguous indication of interest, ideally in large red letters on a lighted billboard pulled by a pair of rented elephants. That's really what would be comfortable for guys. But sorry, guys, that's not how life works. And so basically um, what this guy needs to do, I I talked to you about this in the bar, about the woman blowing um, a guy off he actually needs to um, not worry about um, whether there's a signal or not and just ask a woman out or chat her up. If there's a woman that um, he's interested in, you know, ask her out. And if she isn't giving giving him a hate glare and if she isn't interested, she'll let him know, you know, either with um, then with a the brush off, like actually I have a boyfriend or later when he phones, phones her and hears home Depot, Lumber Department, how may I direct your call? So that's the right way for men to behave, to behave confidently in asking women out and to just see rejection as a cost of doing business. You know, maybe she's a lesbian, maybe she likes guys with blonde hair and you've brown hair, whatever it is. You have no idea. Just dating's a numbers game. Ask a lot of women out and you'll get you'll get more dates than if you ask only one woman out, or just sit sit across a coffee bar staring at her for six months.
0: I also wanted to ask, so in your book, um, you suggest that people people can use your book to transform from being timid to being confident. And that's clearly a process. It's not going to be an immediate magic wand. What do you see as the kind of setbacks that people are likely to, some of the setbacks people are likely to face as they try to do that? And how might they deal with it?
1: Well, I love that you actually said process because or you said process because you have a better accent than I do. It's sort of more groovy, but um, it is. It's a process. It's a thing that you do over and over again. Uh, One of these things is small wins, is the idea of small wins. So say that you are that guy who asks out the girl in the bar and is totally humiliated. You know, this is this is not a fun thing. And so, well, there's perspective on that. The perspective on that is yesterday you sat and stared at the girl in the bar and you've done that for years and years and years and you didn't ask her out. But today you grew a pair. You asked her out. How cool. So you see that that's a small win and these small wins are really important for keeping us going. That's the kind of stuff where you can um, really look in a way that allows you to get out of bed again and do more again, um, you know, rather than just saying, okay, that was horrible. I'm not going to do that anymore because that's the temptation. And so another another thing that's really amazing is this psychologist, James Pennebaker, he came up with this thing called expressive writing. Basically, this is this thing that I never do because I only want to write for pay, but it's actually very good. It's a, it's a way of journaling about... Um, traumatic things that have happened to you because trauma leads to stress and stress causes all sorts of problems. But in his research, people who'd written about their experience, along with the emotions that went with it, had a 50% drop in their visits to the health center at their university. And what he explains, what he thinks and what other psychologists think, is that the benefit from expressive writing seems to come from making meaning out of what happened, making sense out of it through reinterpreting it. And that when you write stuff down, you organize your thoughts in a way that you don't when you're just letting the thoughts fly. Um, and, And he said people who wrote about their trauma, they use these things that I call explainer words like because and the reason and caused, as well as insight words like understand, I see, I realize. And the more they did that, the more they used explainer words like because and insight words like I understand, I now understand, the more improvement they saw in their health. So this is really, really cool. And this is something though, so not everybody's a writer. And so what's very cool, because I am a person who reads from across all these fields of psychology, Sonia Lubomirsky, who researches happiness, she and her colleagues looked at audio recording, and that actually works also. And she thinks it works because you're using an external source, just like with a piece of paper, you're using an electronic device like your phone, and you have to organize and integrate. And analyze problems in a way that you don't if you're just letting your thinking float through your head. So, this is really great. As is other research that finds you can do this, the writing thing, for just two minutes a day. I think Penn Baker had them do it for some long period of time. I'm trying to remember what it was, if it was, it might have been 20 minutes or an hour. I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember, but he, um, His was a long period of time and there's two minutes a day. I mean, that's so amazing. Pennebaker, I wrote to him about this when I read the other people's research and he said this great thing, which is that he believes that people need to be their own scientists in figuring out the best ways to write and do this, that there's no, there's no true way, you know, writing for two minutes works, you know, for some people, some persons, some people will have to do it multiple times you know, and some people will have to do it, you know, they can record it. But what seems to work best for many people is to write by hand rather than the computer. It seems to have more bang for the buck.
0: Amy, it's been wonderful talking to you. We're running a little low on time. So I just wanted to ask if you have any final remarks that you'd like to make or anything you'd like to say before we end the podcast.
1: I know what I'd like to say. Um, I, I've um, been going to evolutionary psychology conferences for going on 20 years. The people are just so great. They've been so welcoming to me. I'm not a PhD. I'm just this chick who wanted to know about their science. And David Buss, who is really a great mating researcher, he gave this great advice to one of his grad students, Barry Cooley, who's a friend of mine and a professor now. He said, be bolder than you think you have any right to be. And I think Mm. that is just so such great advice to be bold. And remember, like this, the process on it's a process of transforming to live with guts and confidence. Being bold is something you do. So you might not feel all that bold and you can go ahead and acknowledge that. Oh, I don't feel so bold. But then just do it. Be bold. Whatever, you know, it happens to be. Do that boldly. Do it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank
0: Thank you you for coming on. And I will put the link to your book in the show notes.
1: Oh, you're so super. Thank you.
0: Um, And also, um, where else can people find you?
1: Um, on Twitter at Amy Elkon, A-M-Y-A-L-K-O-N. They can read my science-based column. Just look it up in papers. It's called The Science Advice Goddess. Some papers still have it as The Advice Goddess. And I have, in addition to my book on fuckology, I have good manners for nice people who sometimes say fuck, um, usually on sale wherever on fuckology is. Um, I somehow became the girl who writes books with fucking the title. Um, my friends will have an intervention for me if I do it again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well I will put links to all of that in the show notes oh, thank and thank you, you so much, thank Amy. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for Ario magazine. Ario is a nonpartisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen pluckrose with the assistance of sub editor yours truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and 2 T are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you are listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, Write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.